So 100,000 years ago or so, our long-faced Neanderthal cousins took the trouble to bury their dead with flowers, feathers, and shells. 30,000 years or so ago, our large-brained Cro-Magnon ancestors dressed their dead in jeweled <coughs> garments and furnished them with ivory statues and stone tools. Perhaps there were some practical-minded citizens among them who protested the waste of resources. But the practical-minded citizens did not prevail. And to this day, they do not prevail. Now, the fossil record is tricky to interpret and controversial, but if you set it alongside the records of the historic civilizations, the suggestion is hard to miss. We human beings care for our dead, not counting the cost, because we are convinced that our dead still live, in some sense. Sigmund Freud thought he could explain this curious fact. In February 1915, he gave a talk called Thoughts for the Times on War and Death to his B'nai B'rith Lodge in Vienna. The world had been at war for eight months. Two of his own sons were at the front. This war he had once regarded as an ennobling exercise that would usher in a new age of enlightenment was proving instead to be an object lesson in human self-deception. It was also exposing, Freud thought, the hidden psychic mechanisms that compel human beings to believe in life after death. Freud said that at bottom, we don't believe in our own death. In the unconscious, in my infantile mind, I am immortal. Whenever I try to think of my death, I imagine myself as a spectator. On the other hand, Freud said, I have no trouble believing in the death of a stranger, especially an enemy who is wholly other to me. So I don't believe in my death. I do believe in the death of a stranger. It's when a loved one dies, who is part me and part other, that I feel torn. You know, Freud loved to talk about ambivalence of feelings. I feel torn between belief, I mean, between relief that it's not me, in a sense, and grief that it is me, in a sense, who died. And this ambivalence produces guilt feelings that can only be assuaged if I picture the dead as living on in another world. So, Freud tells us, belief in immortality is a product of wishful thinking from which we can free ourselves only by a strenuous act of rational self-criticism. Now, of course, there's another possibility to consider. Wishes universally cherished may have a power over us because those wishes are natural to us, and they may be natural to us because they orient us towards something real and true. C.S. Lewis thought this was the case. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Lewis, of course, wasn't the first to turn the charge of wishful thinking on its head. It's what Augustine was doing when he addressed those famous words to God in the confessions, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Our restless hearts are telling us that we were made for the kind of requiem, rest, that the world cannot give. Pope Gregory the Great 
pursued the Augustinian argument from desire so far that the Benedictine scholar Jean Leclerc named him the doctor of desire. So um, at least in terms of uh, the more sort of general idea of a desire for immortality, the question is what kind of desire for immortality comes naturally to us? So I would agree that simply um, projecting onto other people a desire for immortality that they don't themselves acknowledge is a bit arrogant. Um, but there is another way of talking about a desire for immortality or a desire for God that I think doesn't have that fault um, attached to it. So I want to think about that for a minute. What kind of immortality are we meant to crave? Do we want to live forever? Or like the, you know, the Alphaville song, Forever Young? <laughs> That's what many people think of when we mention immortality, endless longevity. In ancient China, it was believed that an alchemical elixir of liquid jade or cinnabar or mercury could preserve your life indefinitely if it didn't poison you on the spot, which is probably more likely. Taoist lore, wonderful stories, uh, uh, bound in, in tales of the eight immortals who live on dew and fly through the air and frolic in each other's company forever. These are wonderful, evocative stories with a great mythopoeic and poetic uh, power to them. But today, the hope for endless longevity comes in a decidedly unpoetic form in the Silicon Valley movement called transhumanism. Just to give you one little example, uh, Ray Kurzweil, you may have heard of, a polymath inventor, director of engineering at Google, uh, claims that we're a mere decade away from the moment when computers will pass the Turing test which means they will produce output indistinguishable from the highest manifestations of human intelligence. And from there, Kurzweil says, it's just a short step to the technological singularity when we'll get to merge our minds with machines. If what we are is essentially patterns of information, the reasoning goes, why not upload that information to a more powerful server and kick away the biological stepladder for good. It's another way of asking for a better body, but a much stranger and, and to my mind, repellent way of making that request. The idea is that freed from our inadequate physical substrate, we can become a pure res cogitans, a thinking thing, occupying one or more bodies of its own choosing, or perhaps dispensing with bodies altogether and moving into some kind of a SimCity where everything is perfect. Um, I could go on about that, because it's very entertaining, but I won't. I'm just, well, I'll just say that I'm convinced that this scenario is nonsense. If it could occur, it would be a horror on the order of all the old science fiction stories about brains in vats. The real worry, though, is the impact that such counterfeit versions of immortality have on our culture here and now. So the first thing to say about the authentic doctrine of immortality is that it is radically different from endless longevity. Christians know, all religious believers know, that the natural craving for immortality is satisfied only by a personal relationship to God. It is this relationship, this requiem, that we are meant to crave. Endless longevity would be boring, some philosophers tell us, I think those are philosophers that don't have a great deal of imagination, <laughs> but uh, real immortality can never be boring. 
It is, by definition, not boring. It is the perfect realization of our deepest interests and gifts. As such, immortality is the fundamental Christian hope. At least, that's how it seemed to one of my favorite saints and future doctors of the church, Blessed John Henry Newman. So I'll just quote a little bit from one of his sermons. Actually, it's from an Anglican sermon. He says, I suppose there is no tolerably informed Christian but considers he has a correct notion of the difference between our religion and the paganism which it supplanted. Everyone, if asked what it is we have gained by the gospel, will promptly answer that we have gained the knowledge of our immortality, of our having souls which will live forever, that the heathen did not know this, but that Christ taught it and that his disciples know it. So imagine how it would shock Newman to learn that a century later, there would be leading churchmen who would rise up to assert the opposite claim, who would proclaim from the pulpits and lecterns of Europe and America that immortality of the soul was in fact the characteristic teaching of the pagans and not of Christ, of Greek philosophy and not of the gospel. This was the position taken um, by, among others, by uh, Oscar Kuhlmann, eminent Lutheran theologian and ecumenist, in his 1955 Ingersoll Lecture on Human Immortality at Harvard. Little quote from him. If today one asks an average Christian, no matter whether Protestant or Catholic, what the New Testament teaches about the destiny of the individual human being after death, in almost every case one will receive the answer, the immortality of the soul. In this form, says Coleman, this opinion is one of the greatest misunderstandings of Christianity there can be. Now there are nuances to Coleman's viewpoint, but the upshot was a forced choice between two competing paradigms. According to the immortality paradigm, as he saw it, your soul is intrinsically invulnerable to death and your body is of no account. According to the resurrection paradigm, you are a creature compact of body and soul and subject to death. Your only hope rests on the revealed promise that Christ will raise you from the dead on the last day. And you can't have it both ways. You can't have both those paradigms, Kuhlmann said. And he was not alone in that opinion. A number of leading German-speaking, mostly Lutheran theologians, people whom Professor Root knows well, um, we're, we're urging Christians to close their ears to the siren song of immortality of the soul. They were deeming it a foreign idea, excessively individualistic and otherworldly, unfaithful to the holism of biblical anthropology, and unmindful of the centrality of Christ's redeeming work. During the 60s and 70s, while Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, Pope Emeritus, was a professor at the University of Regensburg. He witnessed this viewpoint, this de-Hellenization campaign, as he called it, spreading like wildfire across confessional lines. There were Catholic theologians who took to the idea as well. Professor Spencer mentioned Rahner in that regard. Um, they said, we should think of life after death as entry into God's eternity, rather than as a temporal interlude during which separated souls hang around waiting to receive their bodies. A novel theory called resurrection and death 
was proposed as a way to escape from body-soul dualism and eliminate the redundancies of the traditional two-stage eschatology. I would say that redundancy is one of the great uh, virtues of Catholic thought. Anyway, this was an extreme solution, this resurrection and death idea, and it didn't take hold, hold wide, widely, but it did do some damage. As part of the broader de-Hellenization campaign, it contributed to a general climate of embarrassment about dualistic language, an embarrassment that spread beyond the guild of professional theologians to affect catechesis, liturgy, and preaching. But fortunately, the tide turned, and that thanks in no small part to Joseph Ratzinger's 1977 book on eschatology, Death and Eternal Life and his evident influence on the letter on certain questions concerning eschatology that the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith issued in 1979. The letter on eschatology and the fuller treatments that followed marked what I consider a return to sanity. With wonderful clarity, the letter reaffirmed the church's belief in a conscious interim period in which separated souls receive their punishment, purification, or reward. And it defended the use of soul language as the best, most familiar, and I would add most beautiful means we have for supporting belief in personal continuity after death and providing for an abiding communion of the living with the dead. Even so, we had to wait until 2011 to have the words spoken at the invitation to communion faithfully rendered in the English Missal that is replacing the anemic, anemic abstraction, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed, with the much more concrete and biblically resonant, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. But one still hears murmurs of discontent about this soul language. There are some who think that when we speak of the immortal soul, we are simply channeling Plato or Descartes, or maybe Shankara or Madame Blavatsky, but that is not the case. The immortal soul of Christianity is different from the immortal soul of Greek philosophy, or of the Enlightenment, or of Hinduism, or of theosophy. It is immortal, yes, naturally immortal, I would agree. But at the same time, it is more creaturely, more sociable, more implicated in the life of the body, more dependent upon its maker than some of these other visions of the immortal soul. When we consider our hybrid na nature as body and soul, in the light of, and here we move from philosophy, the tour de force we had of a philosophical presentation of these ideas into uh, revealed teachings, when we consider our curious hybrid nature as body and soul in the light of the incarnation, passion, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord, and assumption of the Blessed Virgin, a master plan comes into view, one in which our creator delights in making spirit interpenetrate matter. This seems to be the law of the universe God made, and as far as he revealed it to us, this is his program for remaking it that our brain affects our mind and vice versa belongs to this program, that the soul indwells the body, not as a mere part, like an appendix, but as the part that infuses, constitutes, unifies the whole man. 
that this same soul will endure an interval of separation until its reunion with the body as a person. <laughs> that belongs to the total pattern of our creation, fall, and redemption. Here I am just sounding off, so bear with me. <laughs> because I'm not giving you an exegesis of, of a particular thinker. This is just what I think is sort of the Christian gestalt. Even when sundered from the body by death, the soul retains a nuptial connection to the body, a kind of spiritual muscle memory for the body at once informed. And while the souls of the blessed enjoy perfect happiness, even now in the beatific vision, we have magisterial statements to that effect, there is a further perfection to anticipate on the day of resurrection when all flesh shall see God together. So it's not a stark, forced choice, either or sort of uh, rivalry between the immortality and resurrection paradigms. Though this hybrid nature, our body-soul nature, remains a mystery, it's a lucid mystery, like the incarnation itself. Though it leaves our speculative curiosity unsatisfied, it makes sense of the practically important puzzles. It explains why we should defend life yet welcome death when it comes, why we should cherish our bodies and yet restrain them, why we should love good food and yet be indifferent to it. So um, as someone who's, who's not um, a professional philosopher, and I tend to be somewhat eclectic, I think I'm trying to give myself permission for that eclecticism by saying that as Catholics, we have an enviable freedom that provided we take our bearing from the church's teachings, and that letter on eschatology is a good place to start. Provided we do that, we can learn from a number of great minds, from Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Aquinas, Descartes, much maligned, can be learned from Wittgenstein, without having to wed ourselves to a single philosophical system or exhaust ourselves in its defense. The hylomorphism of Thomas Aquinas may strike us as the best contender for an adequate theological anthropology, but there are other options. Platonism. The key thing is to subordinate our anthropology to this basic Christian gestalt. The fact that we are made is far more important than what we are made of. The fact that we are not only made, but remade changes everything. If we apply this principle to thinking about the beatific vision, something interesting occurs. How can we say that the separated soul, now basking in the light of the beatific vision, is the same as the embodied person whose biological life has ended? Some soul theories are more helpful than others to ground this claim of continuity. But there is also a psychological truth to consider. As the infant's development of a unified personal identity is fostered by the face-to-face -face vision of the mother and thwarted by its deprivation, so the personal identity of souls in the future life perhaps will be fostered by the face-to-face -face vision of God. So when I ask myself, if I'm feeling optimistic about my future life, how will I know that it's the same me enjoying the beatific vision? I will know, regardless of my soul theory, 
because I will see the same him. Or even better, I will be seen by him who called me into, into existence in the first place. So if we are Christian Platonists or Thomistic Hylomorphists, we do count on possessing the kind of natural immortality that goes with being an incorporeal rational soul. But on no Christian account can we regard ourselves as immortals pure and simple. As Professor Spencer pointed out, we are contingent. We are not ready-made for eternity. Most of us need something more, something our tradition calls purgatory, to prepare us for the full personal immortal life for which God made us and to which our restless desire is calling us. So part two, on to purgatory. Purgatory. So a little bit of sociology, perhaps, as an order. Purgatory is a belief founded on a practice, the practice of caring for the dead that I spoke of at the very beginning, going back to the Neanderthals. Care for the dead has profound social consequences. It repairs the fabric of society that death rends. At the same time, it presupposes that the dead are in a condition that admits of improvement. There's a really marvelous sentence in the letter on eschatology that points out that the practical things we do for the dead have a bearing on how we ought to speak about the future life. I quote, the church excludes every way of thinking or speaking that would render meaningless or unintelligible her prayers, her funeral rites, and the religious acts offered for the dead. Well, as it happens, religious acts offered for the dead make sense only if there are souls in via, on the way, for it is of no use to souls in heaven or hell. So this ancient and universal practice points to purgatory as convincingly, perhaps, as many of the spiritual, uh, I'm sorry, many of the scriptural hints, or proof texts, if you wish. Now, colloquially, the word purgatory has come to mean something like hell light, which is very unfortunate. It's not hell light. In its original context, as articulated in the medieval Christian West, and as a matter of Catholic belief, defined at the councils of Lyon in 1274, Ferrara, Florence in the mid-15th century, and Trent in the mid-16th century, purgatory refers to the process of transformation by which those who die in a state of grace and friendship with God are made ready for heaven. There's no trap door to fall through to hell. Once you're in purgatory, you're golden. You've been forgiven for your sins. It's simply a matter of completing the work of repair, experiencing the temporal punishment, as it's put, that makes up what would in life have been normal acts of penance and restitution, healing the memory and purifying the faults and character ticks that would make an eternity of, blessing, of blessedness simply unbearable. Indulgences granted by the church from the treasury of merits, that is, Christ's infinite merit and the merits of all the saints, can remit some or all of this temporal punishment, and the prayers, masses, and almsgiving offered by the living can help to make this process more fruitful and less severe. 
so that's pretty much a summary of the official Catholic understanding of purgatory. In Dante's words, purgatory is that second kingdom in which the human soul is cleansed of sin, becoming worthy of ascent to heaven. Theologians are often reluctant to speak of purgatory as a place. It seems more like a time. I think it is a time. But for poets and visionaries, it is very much a place, however variously located, underground, in the heavens, in certain volcanic openings. There's all sorts of contenders for where you know, the entrance to purgatory is. A key feature of this landscape, though, is fire. The thing is, it's not hell light, but in many depictions, purgatory looks like hell, smells like hell, and is often mistaken for hell by medieval visionaries. Because its predominant modality, passage through fire, comes to us on loan from ancient descriptions of the Last Judgment that feature a refining, or is it sometimes called an intelligent fire, which punishes the wicked and purifies the just, and sometimes works kind of like the Harry Potter sorting hat. Um, Perhaps you've seen those Catholic prayer cards in which the holy souls, as they're called, huddle together in a fiery cavern or prison or furnace, begging to be lifted out of the flames. So this imagery, as imagery at least, is certainly infernal. But I want to emphasize that the point of this infernal imagery is not to scare people into mending their ways. We already have hellfire for that purpose. That ought to be scary enough. The point, really, is to inspire the Catholic devotion to the holy souls, which has given rise to confraternities and prayer guilds devoted to relieving their pains. I understand the New York Purgatorian Society is going to have a special requiem mass on Tuesday. Um, at, the, at the Church of St. Vincent Ferrer. So you can go to that. The idea is to link the living to the dead. So I would say our souls need purgatory for the reason that John Henry Newman once gave. Until we are made holy, we cannot be happy in heaven. But our society needs purgatory also, and for a related reason. Until we are knit together in one body, the living in communion with the dead, we cannot be happy in this world or in the world to come. The special genius of purgatory is its reciprocity. One prays for the souls in purgatory, but one may also pray to them. It is fitting, convenience, I guess, as Aquinas would say, that there should be such a realm and that it should be populated. Purgatory isn't just an extra bit tacked onto our picture of the future life. It's a universally felt need. Now, it may be strange to say that a doctrine that's so peculiarly tied up with the Catholic brand represents a universally felt need, but I have two pieces of evidence to offer for this claim. The analogs to purgatory that can be found in the major world religions and the resurgence of purgatory in Christian cultures where it has been suppressed. So, I'll start with purgatory analogs and world religions, putting on my 
world religions had. All the major religions have stories of hell-like realms or interim periods of trial and suffering for souls whose merits and demerits are equal, whose debts can be numbered and paid off, whose faults can be purified by remedial pains, or who for any other reason are a work in progress. All religions have provisions as well for the living to care for the dead who are undergoing such trials by means of prayers, sacrifices, or symbolic gifts. I'm going to give a couple of examples. Um, I wish there was time for more, but um, there's a medieval Jewish legend about the second century hero, Rabbi Akiva, according to which he once met a spirit in the guise of a man carrying a heavy burden of wood. And the spirit told Rabbi Akiva that the wood was for the fires of Gehenna, in which he was being burned daily for his misdeeds, and that he would be released only if his son were willing and able to recite the mourner's Kaddish on his behalf in the assembly. Now, the problem was that this is a very neglectful father, and he had never taught his son uh, the, the basics of um, Jewish practice, including the Kaddish. So Akiba tracked down the son and gave him the education that his father had wrong, wrongfully denied him. And one day, the young man was able to stand up in the assembly, recite the Kaddish, and win his father's release. Another case in point comes from Buddhism. That Buddhism is one of the richest in, in uh, purgatory analogs of any tradition. Buddhist hells are spectacularly gruesome. And a season of torment can last for eons. They have very vast cosmic time frames. But not even the lowest of the hells is eternal. And that's because no station on the wheel of birth and death is eternal. Everything is impermanent. So in this case, it's kind of a mercy. <laughs> the hells are not eternal. And a further mercy is that the living have the power to relieve the suffering of beings in hell by making donations to monasteries or performing other good works and transferring the merit to the sufferer's account. The story is told and in East Asian countries performed in folk operas every year during the annual ghost festival of an exemplary monk named Mulian who rescued his mother from hell by dedicating to her his accumulated merit backed by the treasury of merit of the Buddha and the entire monastic community. Like, sounds familiar. <laughs> in fact, the merit economy in classical Buddhism is as well defined as any medieval chantry system or system of indulgences. So these are purgatory analogs. I'm not saying it's exactly the same. In fact, as I survey the purgatory analogs in, in many different religious traditions, I'm struck by the difference as well. The Christian purgatory, for instance, does nothing to minimize the pains of hell or lessen the fear of hell. For despite the fiery imagery, it really has nothing to do with hell. But it does something to lessen the fear of heaven, the fear that heaven will not welcome us or that heaven will be boring. Its purpose is to make us into beings incapable of being bored by eternal life. And this point is clearest when we step away from the infernalized picture of purgatory and focus on its sanctifying, beatifying power. 
The 15th century mystic St. Catherine of Genoa tells us that the fire of purgatory is the fire of divine love, which burns away all the soul's dross until the soul becomes all love. Dante includes a passage through fire in his Purgatorio, but the great theme of this canto is the drama of the soul's return to its original blessedness, the first stage in its deification, theosis. At which point Dante uses the word transhumanize in a very different way. It's no wonder that the souls in Dante's purgatory ask for the prayers of the living, not to abolish their suffering, but to make it more fruitful. It is this picture of purgatory as a painful but wholly desirable means of spiritual growth that we find in John Henry Newman's Dream of Gerontius, in C.S. Lewis's letters, letter, letters to Malcolm, and in Pope Benedict's encyclical Spe Salvi, and it is also most appealing to our Protestant and Orthodox friends as well. And with that in mind, I want to say something about the resurgence of purgatory in places where, among Christians, it has been suppressed. <coughs> so I'm assuming that you know about the dim view that the 16th century reformers took of purgatory. So what I'm simply trying to point out is that the need for purgatory is such that even in such a, a climate, it has a way of, of resurfacing. So I'll just, just for example, take the English case. In Tudor England, purgatory, which, which Article 22 of the 39 Articles of Religion would deem a fond thing, vainly invented and grounded upon no warranty of scripture, it was suppressed not only as a doctrine, but as a massive social fact with the dissolution by Henry VIII and his son and short-lived successor, Edward VI, of the intercessory foundations that were essential to public welfare, chantries, schools, hospitals, hospices, that depended on donations provided in exchange for prayers for the souls in purgatory. In fact, purgatory didn't drop off the map of English Reformation Christianity. It became what I see as a kind of underground stream in, in English literature couple of examples. Stephen Greenblatt, the, the Shakespeare scholar, who is actually no friend of Catholicism, nonetheless maintains that Hamlet's father is a Catholic ghost who is visiting his Protestant son to appeal not only for vengeance, but also for remembrance and suffrage. Prayers for the souls in purgatory. So in this context of this sort of attempt to abolish purgatory in Tudor England, certainly communal ritualistic prayer had to go because it savored too much of the old Catholic world. But it could be translated into acts of commemoration. The calculus of merits and penances had to go, but it could be transformed into the intense penitential interiority that is a hallmark of Protestant spirituality. In John Donne's Devotions, 17th century great poet, metaphysical poet, in his Devotions and in the sermon called Death's Duel that he rose from his last sickbed to deliver, there's a kind of purgatory transferred from the interim period after death to the deathbed, the sickbed, the deathbed, 
the prostrate body, the chastened heart, is the place where purgatory happens. This is uh, not really very far from what you find in some patristic and medieval literature that says that purgatory is located in the sufferings of this life as well as, as much as, the trials of the next. Purgatory also made its way into the Puritan allegorical imagination in The Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and hopeful, fall sick with desire as they get close to the celestial city. And they're healed by the sickness. It's a kind of purgatory they've been through. Sanctification, so central to Calvinist and later to Methodist thought, took the place of the rejected Roman Catholic doctrine, as if it were a kind of purified purgatory, freely granted by the Savior, not purchased by penances. The hidden stream of purgatory in English literature became a fresh torrent with the Romantics, with Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and also in the Anglo-Catholic movement. It produced the great purgatory poem of the 19th century, John Henry Newman's Dream of Gerontius, and of the 20th, T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. It gave us the English ghost story tradition, including, I think, Charles Dickens' tale, A Christmas Carol. Jacob Marley, looks like hell, but his visit to Scrooge is described as an act of penance, which I don't think people in hell get to do, perform acts of penance. Punishment, but not penance. So perhaps we can place him in purgatory. In the same era, purgatory was reinvented by the spiritualist movement into a thought-built realm of post-mortem education and progress with mediumistic rescue circles taking the place of confraternities for the holy souls. They'd have, you know, we get together, have a seance, you reach out to those disoriented souls that are in this sort of betwixt and between state after their death. This is what happens when you suppress purgatory. It comes out in, in, in somewhat kooky ways. Finally, the First World War was a watershed and this is something to have in mind since tomorrow is the 100th anniversary of the armistice that ended the fighting. The idea of something like purgatory had been brewing for some time, early modern um, British theologians were certainly entertaining the idea. But it was with the First World War that Anglican authorities took the step of officially sanctioning belief in an interim period of spiritual growth and purification for those whose lives were cut short so brutally. Oh, not if it's sanctioned. By saying it's okay, yes. Yeah, approving. Approving the idea of an interim period of spiritual growth and encouraging people to pray for the dead who were undergoing that period of spiritual growth and purification. So this was enough to make it possible for an ecumenical Protestant thinker like C.S. Lewis to reclaim purgatory under its original name. And the churches of the Reformation, as Professor Root can testify, I hope, or certainly knows more about it than I do, have to some degree followed in this train downplaying satisfaction ideas and cautiously embracing a de-infernalized conception of purgatory as sanctification or deification. I think that part of what makes this ecumenical rapprochement possible is our shared experience of the crises of our time. Our culture is deeply confused 
about death and about human destiny. The natural desire for immortality, whether you look at that as, as psychological or take it to be evidence for the incorruptibility of the intellectual soul, whatever it may be, it's been shattered into fragments of fear and hope that are dispersed through our novels, our films, self-help spiritualities, maybe the transhumanist movement. To be a Christian is to find safe harbor from this confusion. Our faith assures us that death is not the end, and at the same time frees us to be skeptical about the shaky grounds that are sometimes advertised as proof. Professor Spencer mentioned near-death experience is a good example of shaky grounds. Wishful thinking or unwelcome doubts may trouble us at times, but we trust that by the purgatory of this life or the next, we will be made fit to know the truth of what God has prepared for those who love him. And that's my talk. Thank you.